I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 44 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with James Carter. James is the CISO of Logarithm and brings more than 19 years of experience working in corporate IT security and consulting for the Fortune 500 and the U.S. government. At Logarithm, he develops and maintains the company's security governance model and risk strategies and oversees both threat and vulnerability management as well as the SOC. He also directs the mission and strategic vision for the Logarithm Labs Group. Prior to joining Logarithm, James was the director of security at the Mayo Clinic. Prior to Mayo, James served as a senior manager at Mandiant, where he led professional services and incident response engagements. James is a sought-after and frequent speaker at cybersecurity events and is a noted author of several cybersecurity publications. In this episode, we discuss the Colorado cybersecurity scene, solving CISO pain points, what to look for when hiring talent, where to find talent, the importance of networking, automating workflows, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. All right, James, thanks for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? Good. How are you? Excellent. Well, we're sitting up in your, your beautiful offices up here in Boulder, Colorado, which is not too far from where I live. How did you end up, one, with uh, a company that might not necessarily, well, a lot of companies aren't necessarily thought of as, as being in, you know, the Colorado area is a hotbed for technology until recently. There was so much stuff happening on the, uh, the Bay Area in New York City. How did you kind of end up here, and what was kind of your path to ending up with Logarithm? Well, um, you know, if I just look at the you know, last few years, I actually um, was in New York City. I was uh, running Mandiant's New York City office there. I was employee at 53 there. And then um, my wife and I now, we were engaged at the time just said, you know, maybe New York's not a place where we may want to raise kids. Uh, and so we actually took a short stop in Minnesota uh, where I worked at the, the, I will say the clinic in Rochester, Minnesota that can't be named because of their branding rights. But uh, uh, did, did a short stint there for a couple of years and then um, happened to be, um, buying a sim when I was there uh, and replacing an old sim and so uh, obviously we chose logarithm uh, for a number of different reasons and I started establishing a close relationship with the co-founders here and uh, I told them that uh, healthcare may not be long for me uh, and they said well we need a CISO uh, to run our security program and we have an R&D group too that we'd like you to run and so uh, I worked in Minnesota remotely until I finished up my master's degree, uh, my MBA there. And then after I graduated, I, my wife and I, we moved out here to Colorado. So I figured if I'm going to do security work, uh, why not be in a cool spot where I can snowboard every weekend yeah. and, and do all that. So, Well, it's funny. And as I say, I, I think a lot of people kind of sleep on Colorado a little bit, don't realize the talent pool that's here. But you, know, you guys are here, protect-wise, ping. I mean, we can go through the list. There's, there's quite a bit. Are you, are you seeing it now where Colorado is getting more of a traction, both in talent and recognition for being kind of a security hub within the country? Yeah, I actually think, you know, 
I think it's bigger than a security hub. I think it's actually, you know, a larger technology hub now. Um, you know, we've got, you know, every big name company that you can think of has a presence here of some sort, whether it's Microsoft, Google, uh, VMware, whatever the case might be. Um, so I think this Denver Boulder area is starting to become a hot, but I actually look at it as like, uh, you know, you've got Silicon Valley and then Austin, Texas was considered the kind of Silicon Valley of the South. But I think we're now in that same kind of conversation around being kind of a next smaller but next kind of Silicon Valley type situation. What do you think attracts uh, companies to come here? Well, I think the there's a lot of educated people in Colorado. I think that helps, you know, there's a lot of people with degrees, there's a lot of people that um, are smart, have a technology and security aptitude. Uh, we've got a pretty good population in airport. We've got mountains and outdoor stuff. So I think it's just like, a, you know, people that really want uh, have a passion for their job in security, but also want that work-life balance. It's like a great location for it. Um, and there is a lot of, you know, tech folks here and the community is actually pretty strong. Uh, you know, it's, you know, I was, I've been in other communities in New York and DC and, and San Francisco, kind of your typical uh, cybersecurity hubs, uh, if you will. And I feel like the Denver community is uh, as close-knit, if not more close-knit, than even those that have been well-established for a long time. Yeah, I found it interesting that, you know, with, uh, with some of the folks here, they're, they're much more approachable. And I find that within the community, you can, there, there is a community, quite frankly, where I, I found it, it kind of started lacking even in the New York City area, where it was for a, a while, that, you know, the people just kind of fell off, and for a variety of different reasons. But here, it seems that people are much more collaborative and willing to help each other. Uh, do, do you, have you found that to be the case as yeah, well? Yeah, I mean, I've only been here in Denver slash Boulder for two and a half years. Um, and I think part of it too is that there's so many people that are moving to this area in general that may not be in tech or security, uh, but there's so many people that are moving here in general. No one's really, you know, the percentage of people that are actually from Colorado uh, that live in this area is fairly small. Uh, and so people, because of that, they, I think they really open up and they know that when people first get here, getting them involved in the community is a big deal. Uh, and so they open, they're a lot more open than say where I was at in Minnesota, where it's like, oh, you didn't grow up here. We're not gonna, you know, you're going to be an outsider. Yeah. Um, and it takes a long time to get into that group. But here, I think people just kind of greet you with open arms. I mean, my first, uh, my first couple months when, after I moved into Colorado, uh, you know, Rob Reck over at Ping sent me an invite and said, Hey, let's go grab lunch. Uh, and you know, we knew each other in passing, but nothing, nothing crazy, but it was just like, Getting, you know, people in the community were automatically reaching out as soon as, you know, someone else was here that uh, was in our space. So. And do you find one of the things that, that kind of attracted me to this area and that is starting to prove itself uh, to be true is that there's a good talent pull here. You can get a, there's a solid group of people that you can pull that are either coming from the universities, stuff that like SecureSet's doing. I know you guys do some some work with them. I've, I've started teaching with them. So there seems to be a good educational base and a good talent pool at the junior level of people coming in. There is. And, and then you have on top of that, you know, Governor Hickenlooper, who really, you know, has a um, big, big piece of cybersecurity. I mean, like he drives it, you know, you have your, the NCC down in Colorado Springs that he's trying to spin up. Um, he's, he's, you know, been a guest speaker at multiple cybersecurity conferences and things like that. So he really has a passion for it and an interest in it. And I think that just helps us, helps drive cybersecurity in Colorado. Uh, and if we don't have the talent pool already in-house, people are coming in constantly and we're just cultivating that talent pool. 
but yeah, the guys at SecureSet, they're doing you know a lot of great work with both their accelerator programs and incubators, as well as their you know their cybersecurity training, mm-hmm. uh, giving all these folks that are you know transitioning from IT jobs and other jobs into uh, turning them into you know cybersecurity engineers or analysts. So yeah. Now, you've certainly had kind of a technology background yourself, but now you're in a CISO role, more in management. What's been the transition like going from, you know, kind of maybe being more hands-on keyboard to directing larger groups of people and strategy? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a lot of Microsoft Office, <laughs> uh, a lot of, you know, budgets and plannings and, uh, you know, making sure that you've got a sound strategy and that your team is executing against that strategy so mm-hmm. you can kind of over, you know, you know, achieve your business goals and objectives. Um, I do miss the hands-on keyboard work sometimes, and I will every now and then get my fingers dirty still, uh, or I might get my hands dirty, but uh, um, I actually like the the business side, the strategy side, the budget side. It's kind of interesting. I, I When I play video games, I still do that uh, when I have time, but I play like these football video games, and I don't even play the game. I just like manage the team. <laughs> Uh, and so I'm, I'm managing their, their budget, um, you know, signing free agents, I'm doing this and trades and things like that. And so I think, you know, that part, uh, really, you know, speaks to me. And that's also why I went and got my MBA, uh, right before I became a CISO, just because it gave me that kind of business insight, uh, that I think is hundred percent necessary for any CISO out there. Right, so it sounds like, you know, certainly for CISO, you can need some technical aptitude business. Are there other skill sets that play heavily into the role that might not necessarily always be talked about? Yeah. You know, I think, um, being a good salesman is, and, and I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, say that as like, you know, someone being fake or selling or, you know, doing whatever, like what a lot of tech folks, you know, have a, you know, they're a little disparaging towards sales folks, but, you know, being able to, what sales folks can do is they can, you know, relay a message. Uh, they can speak to something that's important to a customer. And so, you know, having that ability to be able to present things that uh, are important to the business, to the business stakeholders, and being able to get them to buy in on your vision and strategy, I think is it's so critical. Uh, because if they can't see the value of it, you're not going to get the budget. You're not going to get the staffing. You're not going to get a lot of things. But if they can buy in on that, uh, then you know you will be very successful. And I think you know that sales aspect is important. Um, I think a P, the PR marketing aspect. I know probably for my role it's a little unique because I work for a security software company. Um, but you know myself and probably Chris Peterson, our co-founder, are the primary uh, faces of the company when it comes from a PR and marketing perspective. Uh, and so being able to communicate and talk in front of a crowd and being able to do that is also just, just critical. A lot of tech folks don't like to be in meetings, don't like to be in front of a crowd and things like that. And I think it's a, it's a skill that you, you know, have to develop and actually leverage quite a bit. Sure. And you know, certainly, I mean, you, you, you do work within a software security company, but likely you're having to buy a lot of other products to manage your own internal what are some of the things that you look for as a CISO buyer, um, even within the space of some of the, when you were evaluating products or things that might be the right fit? You know, it's, it's tough because I feel like in the industry, there is a lot of snake oil out there right now. There's a lot of, um, you know, I always, uh, for the past four or five years, I've said that there's going to be a consolidation in the, in the security market space because of there's so many kind of one-off, you know, feature sets that they're turning into entire companies and products. And then they're all saying the same stuff. They're all using the same buzzwords. And so 
as a CISO, you know, you go to RSA every year and the hall of exhibitors gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and you can't, it's hard to differentiate, you know, what's real and what's maybe more theory than real. Um, so, um, you know, you just have to do some due diligence on really looking at, you know, what is, what is your problem set that you're trying to solve as a part of your security program and then looking at technologies that can match that. Um, and I think you have to be very selective. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not a CISO that has unlimited budget where I can just go buy every technology out there and then somehow try to make it work. So I think you have to look at that too. You know, what is it that's going to provide you the biggest capability, integrates well within your processes and workflows, something your team can manage uh, effectively, uh, and that gives you the broadest coverage and, and of, uh, you know, from the ability to detect and respond to threats if, that, if that's something that happens with your organization. Yeah, you certainly see it where there's there's been numbers thrown around that it can take anywhere from one to one and a half full-time employees for any enterprise enterprise security product to put in place. Right. So trying to manage that uh, is you know kind of going back to your earlier point about communications. Do you find that that's a challenge too? Say so not only we're we going to put in a solution, but here's the staffing needs and rolling up all the extra costs to really show what's the true cost of ownership. Yeah, I think if you're if you're not doing that as a CISO, you're probably not doing your job. Um, I, you know, total cost of ownership is something you always have to look at, and that includes your right people always forget about the kind of human capital side. They forget about the, you know, what's going to take to drive and operate that. Uh, great example: there was a GRC product made by a big company, and and you know we had that at one of my uh, last companies, and it took three or four full-time staff just to manage it. Uh, and most security companies or security organizations don't even have three or four full-time staff as their security department, if you will. Uh, and so those are all things that you have to consider. And you know there may be some things that you have to outsource um, to be able to kind of augment costs, augment staff and capability. Uh, so those are all things that are in consideration when building your program out. Definitely. And you know certainly um, with the products that you guys are kind of represent, what, I mean, does that go into your kind of product implementation to your customers to say, okay, I, I know it because I've felt the pain. Yeah. Do you try to relate that to them so you, you're all kind of on the same page? Yeah, we do. Uh, not only, the great part about working for the company I work for is not only do we um, relate that as from a CISO perspective. So it's, it's real easy for me here at Logarithm to demonstrate business value because we're building a, you know, what I would consider probably world-class security organization and we are, can be an example for how to do it effectively. Uh, we obviously use our own products. We also have other products that we integrate in and leverage as well. But we can actually demonstrate and show real capability, real challenges being uh, being solved, and then show that to prospects and customers. And they say, oh, I didn't even think about that. Wow, that is, you know, and, and we can show like the full maturity of what it took us to build this. Um, and it just gives them, you know, gives our our organization credibility that we know what we're talking about, uh, but it also gives the prospect or customer uh, kind of a blueprint of how they could build their security operations up as well. Gotcha. What would you say is some of the, the common mistakes that you do see in a lot of organizations? You know, everybody's going to be at kind of a different stage, you know, but maybe early on and as people are really trying to get get their, uh, their program up to speed and mature, what, what's some of the common stumbling blocks that you see? Uh, I think, you know, the biggest stumbling block that I see is is not taking into account corporate culture. Um, I think that um, that will make or break you as a CISO. Um, if you are, encounter a culture that has never had security before, doesn't really see the business value of it, uh, you know, they're 
you have to explain to them what phishing emails are and things like that. You know, it just really depends on that culture. But if they're anti-security or just not up to speed on it, it really can slow your program down. Because everything now is you defining the whys of why this exists, why we have to go this route, why we have to do certain things. If you have a culture that is either security aware, security conscience, conscious, and, and there's a business connection there, business driver for it, your program can accelerate much faster. Um, so I think culture is probably one of the bigger stumbling blocks. Uh, and I think, you know, we hit on it earlier, but uh, I know a lot of CISOs that buy a lot of technology uh, and then they go, oh, how do I run this? I didn't think about integration. I didn't think about how all this workflow works together um, and what I'm gonna get on the other side. And so all they end up doing is adding additional work to their staff, uh, their probably smaller staff, um, and not giving them the not having the proper resources to run it effectively. Yeah, one of the things too, you know, we've, we've kind of seen the shift too of, or it's trying to this, a better place to really align the CISO with inside the organizations. And one of the things I spoke with actually Rob Reck, Reck and Alex Wood on my earlier podcast too was, you know, this role of the CISO does it report to the C-suite or where should it go? Should it be under tech or should it be under a different department? What's the kind of roles that you see a CISO really being under? You know. I think it can be effective in any type of role. The only time I've seen it not be as effective is if the CISO is buried under uh, a lot of high, you know, kind of hierarchy. If they're buried under a lot of that, you know, they're say they're a director level, but they have this, you know, but acting CISO type situation. Uh, I've never seen that work successfully just because they didn't have enough clout, enough teeth, enough things to drive kind of the security program. And so it ends up either slow rolling or just taking a backseat to a lot of other initiatives. My preference as well is to not be under the, the CIO, uh, but I think it can work effectively under the CIO. Um, at our organization here, the CIO or the VP of IT is in a separate reporting line than I am. Uh, so the VP of IT reports into finance. Uh, I report directly to the CTO and co-founder. And so uh, we do have, so we worked in partnership on many levels, but we do have separate reporting structures and separate budgets. And therefore the IT, overall IT budget never really compromises the security budget and vice versa. Gotcha. But at the same point, it's a team sport. That's right. That's right. And you're not going to get anywhere in security unless you're best friends with IT. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it is a team sport. You know, we've had cases where we've, you know, myself and the VP of IT will go, hey, how much room do you have in your budget? How much room do you have in your budget? We need to do this as a company. We'll slide it in one of our budgets and we'll actually share that. Um, there's a lot of times too where we're funding something, but IT manages it. So, um, so yeah, so I guess to, to answer your, your question is, is I think it can work in a lot of different ways. I've seen it report to legal and risk and things like that. But, um, um, you know, I think having some teeth in the organization as a CISO is important. Yeah, and there was a recent blog post you had on, on the logarithm site, and there was one of the points that you made out too that, that I want to touch a little bit about, like uh, you know how how not to be necessarily twenty four seven on call as a CISO, and how do you balance that so you can have you know particularly hey I mean, you know if you're in Colorado you want to have that work life balance. What's some of the keys to success on that? You know I think automating the kind of mundane security type work that you have is is critical. Um, so that way, you know, the only things that you get alerted to are really a lot bigger. Um, and I think, you know, we've done a good job of doing things like, uh, our teams developed, uh, it's actually open source and you can get it from our GitHub site, but an automated 
phishing detection and response, uh, a bunch of scripts that we wrote that basically work with Office 365. We'll actually examine all the emails that come in. We'll look for things that may be suspicious. We'll run them through a process. We'll check threat intelligence sources. We'll do, you know, we'll check all these different things and then we can go wipe stuff off disk. We can remove mail from mailboxes. We can do all these different things. And so phishing is probably for us our, our number one attack vector. We don't really, you know, we're not really a target for nation state threat actors or, uh, you know, large financial crime groups or things like that. So, you know, that phishing and, and the commodity stuff is, is probably our number one uh, threat vector, but we've automated that full phishing component. So now my team very rarely has to investigate a phishing email anymore. Uh, and if those occur over the weekend, there's no alerts that go out. The SIM just actually takes care of it all, does, goes through all the workflow and automates it and then lets me know. And then I come in on Monday or Tuesday morning and I say, oh, we actually had a campaign that came in over the weekend, but it was taken care of within two minutes of it actually arriving. Um, so automating as much as you can. Uh, and that's going to take a lot of work workload off your, uh, off your staff as well. Um, and I think the other thing is, as a good example, is that I actually have oversight and I'm responsible for physical security here as well. Uh, so even though my title is C CISO, uh, I have physical security as well. And, you know, and, you know, people walk in the doors, they badge a little funny, it sets off an alarm and, you know, it's Saturday morning and you're like, do I really want to, you know, get this call? Um, but we're building a lot of integrations there too to automate things like taking pictures and snapshots of the actual, you know, a minute before and a minute after that specific alarm triggered and be able to basically look at our phone and go, yep, that's valid or not valid uh, and make it real easy uh, and automate as much of that kind of investigative process as you can. So that will help you uh, big time as far as like getting some time to sleep and actually take a vacation. And that goes to, to other areas of the security as well. Even the, you know, maybe the, the, level ones, level twos, the people are responding, it sounds like, you know, I think that's what we're starting to, at least what I'm hearing is more of that trend of, you know, you put in more products, you definitely gonna have more alerts, and then alert fatigue sets in, is that, are there things like machine learning and AI that actually, as much as everybody, you know, talking about, you know, RSA buzzwords, I mean, those are the biggest Yeah, I was like, those year. are the biggest ones right now, so. But, I mean, they, it, you know, can they actually be effective if we kind of uh, separate the, you know, no pun intended, but the signal to noise on those, can they actually help us in that automation process? You know, I think, you know, we're ML, I think ML is a little bit more more true than AI today. You know, AI is, is being able to take, you know, something that's anomalous or something that's out of the norm and say, is it really malicious or was it just suspicious? Um, and I still think as an industry as a whole, even though we claim AI and, and tout it, that determination still happens by an analyst. Uh, analysts still make that determination. Now, ML, especially from an anomaly detection perspective, has really grown uh, over the years. You know, so you have all these, you know, UEBA vendors now, uh, you know, and we, you know, we released our own UEBA product as well to basically uh, compete with those guys directly. Um, and if you if you look at that, a lot of that is ML-based anomaly detection. You know, we combine scenario-based analytics with our SIM product plus the anomaly detection of our ML side, uh, and that's what makes up our UEBA product. But so I do think ML is mature and can help with that. I think AI is still not fully there, but I think if you take your investigative workflow and processes that you know of to do as an analyst and just automate that. Um, that will actually, that, that's a really good place to be in right now. Um, uh, because then you're not really trying to deal with AI and start going down these like, you know, rabbit holes of 
you know, of theory to see if it's going to be successful, but you actually can practically automate different parts of the workflow and that will save you time, energy, and everything else. So, you know, and certainly you're, you're in your role, I'm sure you have to go through a lot of mentoring and hiring of people. What are some of the characteristics and qualities that you look for in some of the people that you try to hire, bring in, and mentor into the industry? Yeah, that's a great question, actually, because I was going to say another thing that helps you out is enabling your staff and enabling, you know, having a strong team. Um, you know, I think the first thing um, is I look at three basic characteristics. I look at, you know, technical aptitude first. You know, do they have, they may not need to be a, you know, malware analyst, but, you know, if they're a programmer or have a programming background, they probably have the aptitude to reverse engineer code to be able to be a malware analyst. So you look at, do they have a strong technical aptitude to do the job that's needed? Um, you know, obviously a GRC person or a governance and compliance person may not be, need to be a programmer or have that aptitude, but you want to look at, okay, in that specific area, what is their background and what aptitude do they have to be able to do that job? Uh, and then you look at communication uh, on top of that. Can they speak? Can they write? Uh, that's It's critical. Um, otherwise, you know, the CISO spends or their manager spends a lot of time editing and, and redlining and and training people on how to write uh, effectively. And then uh, the last piece uh, beyond communications is kind of leadership qualities. Um, just because security gets dragged into every meeting, uh, we get pulled into, which is a good thing, we get pulled into every major project and oftentimes the team's small enough, everybody has to be a leader and represent the security organization and be able to do that effectively, You know, drive the message uh, ensure that you know we're you know not taking unnecessary risks, uh, making sure that we're doing things safely to protect the business. Um, so you know, in small teams, everybody has to be a strong leader uh, in security. And so, uh, unless you work for some you know massive company, you can hire 50 people and and, and you know have a you know a lot of tiered uh, tiered analysts and things like that. But you know, most companies, everybody has to be a strong leader. Gotcha. And, you know, certainly you've come with an IR background and, and seen a lot of the forensic search and different types of training. Are, how, how heavy do you weigh the certification and trainings outside of, you know, like your organization when you, when you look at and evaluate people? You know, I'm not a big cert guy. Um, I look for practical experience and in, in things. And, um, you know, certs for me, I've seen too many people that can pass a cert but actually don't know what they're doing. Um, and so there's a few certs that I still, you know, have some respect for um, or, you know, will recommend people to get actually if they're getting, especially if they're getting their start in the security, in their security career, um, you know, getting a CISSP as an example. Probably a fundamental, uh, a fundamental certification you have to have whenever you're at least beginning your security career or, you know, you're in your first couple years. It's a, just a good benchmark to have. But I wouldn't say that every CISSP uh, knows security and has lived it and done it before. And so I look more towards their practical experience than I do certs. Um, I'll take a glance at certs on a resume, but I will, I will way more heavily lean on uh, practical experience. And I'll also lean on the fact that if they've got a strong kind of, especially if they're in a technical role, a strong, you know, degree or something like that. And, you know, if they've got a computer science degree versus a computer information systems degree, I'm going to weigh that. Um, and so those things are more important to me than, than certs. Gotcha. So, uh, you know, I'm sure you talk to a lot of people. We've talked about uh, folks in the community and, and stuff with like security. I'm sure you must get asked, you know, from people, okay, how do I get started? 
uh, in cybersecurity? What's, I guess, the kind of common advice that you give to people that, that look to you and say, hey, I want to I start doing this. I, I think it's cool. Um, it happens a lot. Um, and I think it just, you know, it's, it's interesting because I, I feel like in my career, I was fortunate enough where I got kind of thrown into this in the mid-90s, and I've been in it ever since. Um, and so, you know, there wasn't, I had the option of do you want to do it or not? Uh, and I just chose to do it, you know, without knowing much about what information security was in the mid nineties. Um, so, you know, as far as people, I've never, I've never had, I myself have not had to cross train into, uh, into the field or, or coming from a different background. So, um, I may not be the best to, to give advice on that, but I, I think, you know, what's I found successful is a lot of reading and research and interacting with the community as well. So, you know, talking to people that know the industry, getting connected with those people that know the industry, reading and understanding about everything that's going on in the industry. Um, and then, you know, there's a lot of open source stuff that you can get your hands on. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I am, you know, a CISO and I still run a lab at home. So, you know, I've got 50 VMs sitting at my house uh, and uh, on top of all my IoT devices, uh, I run a SIM, I run a network monitor, I run a vulnerability scanners, intrusion detection systems, I've got forensics uh, workstations, malware analysis workstations, um, but I run all that at home just because I still want to keep myself fresh on kind of like what technology is out there and how, it's, and how it operates. Plus it helps give you an understanding of what's under the covers. A lot of times a CISO, especially if they're not a strong uh, technical, they don't have a strong technical background or start out in the technical world. Um, you know, I find, I find that a lot of engineers and analysts respect you a lot more if you actually still, you know, you have a little bit of that background. And so it still keeps me a little fresh. Um, so it's not just Microsoft Word, PowerPoint presentations and everything else, but it keeps me a little fresh with the technology. And I think that's critical, getting your hands on the technology, networking with folks in the industry, uh, and then just doing a lot of reading and research. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, it's especially with, uh, you know, with and not just to totally age myself, but I mean, you know, within the, you know, the millennial group, you do have to kind of stay fresh. But I find that it's easier to manage them when you can show you have a little bit of street cred when you have some right. technical knowledge because right. they, they don't trust you unless you do. That's right. That's right. And it's 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 interesting, too, because that trust factor goes a long way. Um, just because they, they trust that you can relate to them and, and know about where they're coming from and, and just, you know, all of that. Um, you'll get you'll get a lot more respect, but you'll also get a lot more out of them too. Um, they'll drive harder because they respect you of, of who you are and what your background was versus someone who may not have it. Mm-hmm. And then if they don't have it, I think the key is you have to seek to go go seek to understand that. If you don't if you don't have a strong technical background as a CISO, then go seek to understand that a little bit at least. So it makes it look like you're giving an effort towards understanding what what the analysts and engineers are dealing with. Uh, that's super critical, I think, too. Gotcha. You touched on one, one other piece, too, that I think is important in career development that's come up time and again in this podcast is getting out there and networking, going to conferences. You know, we have the Rocky Mountain Information Security Conference coming up, which is a, a big one that ISA and ISACA puts on. Um, so it's kind of a loaded question, but obviously you, you must feel that getting out in the community and networking is pretty pretty important. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, you mentioned a couple organizations there. I think there's probably a handful more uh, with like OWASP groups and things like that. But, you know, your local ISSAs, ISACAs, they're always throwing, you know, trainings and conferences together and things like that. And there's a, they have a pretty large membership. 
Uh, so it's a great way to, you know, hear about, they do a lot of presentations too. So it's a great way to hear about kind of latest trends, latest technology, latest, you know, issues that people are trying to, or questions they're trying to answer, problems they're trying to solve. Um, so you'll get that kind of knowledge transfer, um, but then you'll also get to meet people in the industry. Uh, and I think that if it's so much harder to find a job in the security field if you don't know someone. Um, and, you know, I looked at, I look at my last few roles. Uh, how I became, you know, the CISO at Logarithm is because I established a relationship with the co-founder of Logarithm. Uh, before, when I took the job in the, in the, for the healthcare company, the CISO at the time of the healthcare company was the CISO of an old customer of mine when I was at Mandiant. Uh, when I took the job at Mandiant, uh, it was because I had a relationship through an Air Force Office of Special Investigation connection. And um, so when I, I was at IBM before that on the offensive side, uh, and then because of that relationship, I really didn't even have to interview for these, you know, for these jobs. I interviewed for the Mandiant one, uh, I think just because they're like, all right, you're an offensive guy, let's see <laughs> how you can go this way. Um, but I... It, the interview is sort of a formality in my mind for the job that I took in healthcare and in, even this one. I mean, at the time, you know, the CTO and I had a pretty good relationship. We had to sit down and said, or right, this is what it can look like and do you want, do you want to do it? Uh, so, but it's all based on relationship and building that kind of rapport and that trust uh, with those folks. And I would say it also works uh, conversely too for when you're looking for staff. You know, you can go out there, you can put job posts up and job wrecks up to your heart's content, but really until you get out and meet people in the community, I found the best people that I've met have been referrals and candidates that I, I had that opportunity to meet on a early face-to-face -face basis. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I, yeah, that's, you know, you, you will trust someone, you know, you will trust someone, and if they recommend them and put their neck out on the line for some, that's a huge endorsement, and that tells you that that person trusts them too, uh, to not make them look foolish, make them look bad, and so those are 100% the best um, candidates that you could actually bring in. You know, we, you know, even hiring at Logarithm, um, most of our hires are referrals of other employees that work here versus just people off the street that just apply to an open position. Mm -hmm. um, just because that if we trust that employee uh, and they do, they do great work and they're recommending someone else and, and vouching for them, that is a bigger reference to us than, you know, someone listing a list of references of people that they know we know are going to talk, you know, nicely about them. Yeah, and definitely. You know, we, we there's always this the numbers that get thrown around about how many jobs that need to be filled in cybersecurity. Um, is that a gap that can be filled if we're only going out there and doing one to one? So how do we overcome the, the, the numbers challenge? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting because uh, I was, I think I wrote a, either a blog post or I read some article where they talked about the, you know, number of open positions. And the interesting part is the number of people now in information security has grown tremendously. Um, but the number of positions, open positions has grown even more. So, you know, those, you know, those are outpacing the pace at which people are coming into to our industry. Um, I don't know if we're going to close that gap anytime within the next 10 years, um, to be quite honest. I think that there is efforts there. Uh, a lot of universities now have strong cybersecurity programs where they never had them 10 years ago. Uh, you have, you know, we mentioned SecureSet, you know, companies like that that are actually developing kind of accelerators and training grounds and proving grounds for a lot of these folks. Um, and I think so there, I think there's a, there's an effort there. I just don't know if it will 
uh, be able to close the gap with the number of open positions that are out there. Yeah, it's not a not an overnight solution, unfortunately. No, no, not at all. And and then you know it makes it interesting too because then you know even though you're friends with all the CISOs in the region. Uh, you know, it doesn't prevent them from saying, hey, look, we know there's a bunch of qualified people over here. We know there's some over there. Yeah. I have this position to fill. Um, and, you know, a lot of us end up, you know, big borrowing and stealing from each other from, from a talent pool perspective. Um, so, you know, that, that makes it interesting, too, because of the shortage. Oh, sure. I think I think that's how we got to talking was uh, Rob Rex stole somebody I wanted before I got a chance to meet him. That's true. Picked up quick, so. That's true. That's true. He was, a, he was uh, someone that we recommended that interned here for a couple of years for us, and we loved him. Uh, we just didn't have the, the head count to, to convert him over. And, uh, yeah, I think Rob snatched, snatched him up within about a week. Yeah, they, they go fast. Well, I greatly appreciate the time today. Where can people find you? Uh, you know, they can, uh, I'm on Twitter. So at Carter James is my, my Twitter handle. Um, you know, you could figure out my email address, uh, first and last name at, uh, at logarithm.com. So feel free to, you know, email me or drop me a line. Uh, and then, you know, you can always reach out, you know, on our corporate site and I'm listed there as one of the execs. So you can actually click on it and message me and things like that. So. Awesome. I'll put that up there with all the links in the show notes as well as I think, uh, your blog post, which I've been following a pretty... Pretty good, so keep up that as well. Yeah, I also have a CSO online standing blog too that I that I do. So I just actually uh, wrote my my latest blog post and put it out there on um, uh, zero trust and being able to implement zero trust uh, at a company. And so we're going to roll that out here at Logarithm. Oh, nice. Uh, and it's uh, you know we're nimble enough, small enough, uh, and I think simple enough. And I don't want to oversimplify that, but you know we're not that complex from an infrastructure perspective where I think we can actually do it successfully and pretty quickly. Very cool. Well, like I said, I'll put that all in the show notes, and I greatly appreciate you taking the time today. Awesome. Thanks, Tom. All right. Thanks, Jason. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com, where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.